namo tassa bhagavato harato sambhasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato harato sambhasambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sambhasambuddhassa buddham dhammang sanghang namasami I had the thought to say a few words about a few things. We'll see what comes up. Um, We started the retreat with this theme, which I don't know how closely we follow the theme, but it was was something. Uh, Uncertainty, attention, and devotion. And I hope you've all been devotedly paying attention to uncertainty. That would be fulfilling all three factors of the theme. Um, And of course, I hope that I've given you a different, a little bit, a little bit uh, different take on anicca and uncertainty. It's worth touching on it one more time. Oftentimes, when I talk to people. Some who are visiting the monastery, sometimes uh, when I'm out and about with my family. It seems that people uh, have some idea about Buddhism, which is somehow partial or incomplete. Uh, They think it is a religion, or they think it is a philosophy, or they think that it is this, that, or the other thing. They've got some idea about what it is. And almost always what they think it is, is that it's a variation on something they already know. They think they, because they already know something, that, oh, Buddhism kind of looks like that, so it must be the same sort of thing. So it kind of looks like religion, because there's like bowing and chanting and incense and um, we've got this whole book of chanting. It's kind of religious. It must be a religion. And then they don't have to think about it anymore. They're done. They've come to a, they've come to a conclusion. They trust their, their reasoning. And that's as far as they need to go. And of course, if they make that conclusion, though, they also tend to think, well, and all religions are pretty much the same. Like, <coughs> see, like, don't kill people, be nice, and you'll go to heaven. Simple, right? That's all there is to it. And it's just a religion that evolved in Asia, and so it's got some Asian qualities to it. But it's just like, it's the same thing as any other religion, Hinduism. Islam or Christianity, they're all the same. They're just religious. Now I don't have to think about it anymore because now I know. And if someone thinks that Buddhism is a philosophy, they can find elements in it that will support that view. Like the Buddha talks about things like this, that conditionality and whether things exist and um, what is the nature of a human life and different components of, of existence. And these are all philosophical things that the West, Western philosophy has been 
grappling with since the Greeks, the ancient Greeks. And the Buddha was actually a contemporary of some of these ancient Greek thinkers, and so he, it's pretty easy to kind of say, well, he was a, a philosopher, and then, you know, those crazy Indians, they made a religion out of it. But it's really a philosophy. And then once you've decided that it's a philosophy, and you see enough elements there to support your view, then you're done. You don't have to think about it anymore. Case closed. And um, people can think of it as a culture, uh, as a lifestyle, as a, a crazy head-shading worldview, a cult. Um, and almost all these things they're, they're trying to fit. They're assigning Buddhism to, or the Buddha's teaching to, um, because it takes a lot of effort, actually, to try to understand exactly what it is he's talking about and to discern whether there's any value there or not. And for the most part, that's just how it is. That's how the world is. Um, our minds are programmed to do that, to take shortcuts so that we can not have to spend too much time pondering things. So uh, we, we look at a person, they remind us of our crazy uncle, of the way they walk, the way they talk, and so we think, oh, that's a crazy person like my crazy uncle, and avoid, and that's it. That's, you don't have to think about it anymore. You've summed up that person in a single thought. So their whole life, their whole history, everything about them, all their characteristics, you don't get to see that because your mind has arrived at a conclusion already. All you have is this uh, quick sketch and uh, make decisions based on the quick sketch and the quick interpretation. And this is just what we have to deal with. Not so much the fact that other people size things up quickly and take their views and opinions for reality. That's the way the world is. More importantly is that we do the same thing. Right? Us followers of the Buddha Dhamma, we size things up quickly and we take our opinions and our views to be good enough, like close enough to the truth, I don't need to think about it anymore. And it's not that that's somehow evil or wrong, but it is, uh, it is very important as a practitioner, <clears throat> for us to continually remind ourselves that that's what the mind is doing. That's what our minds do. It takes a shortcut. It substitutes concepts and beliefs and views and opinions for actual fullness of data, fullness of understanding, fullness of experience. If we know that that's what our mind is doing, then we'll be a little circumspect, a little careful about taking our views and opinions about things too seriously. Be a little more open-minded, remembering that, okay, this is just my view, this is my opinion. Uh, there's an old saying in the army about opinions regarding everybody having one, right? Opinions are like, fill in the blank, some body part, heads, you know, everybody has one. 
you can't not have an opinion. Right? You're, you're, because you have a human mind, you have to have opinions about everything. You can't navigate the world without opinions. So it's normal. But again, because we have opinions and our minds are designed this way, we tend to conflate or mistake our opinion for a, a complete representation of truth. We take our opinions to be true, to be the truth about things. And so it's not just the opinion about other people, but the opinion about the world, anything the world has to offer. And ourselves, of course, right? our opinion about ourselves. I'm a good person, I'm not a good person, I'm this, I'm that. Um, and when we when we practice with attention, we'll see the uncertainty of these opinions about how they're they're fabricated, they're constructed, they're uh, they are the minds shortcut way of dealing with too much data, with too much information in a complicated environment that requires us to make quick decisions. So we can't, we don't have the time to thoroughly investigate every nuance of every moment of awareness uh, in our daily lives. When we come on retreat, okay, now we've got a chance. And we can actually do that. And we see new things when we do it. And the fact that we see new things when we do that uh, is indicative of a larger truth, which is that whenever we're not directly experiencing the raw truth of this moment, we are to some degree or another lost in concepts. Right? As long as we're thinking about the future, thinking about the past, thinking about ourselves, thinking about other people, thinking about politics, thinking about anything. We're just in a, a made-up world of our mind. And that world is grounded somehow or another in the, our experiences, which are have some validity, but that they're, they're limited in how far they go. They're not really the truth. They're just opinions. Right? They're just views. They're derived understandings which are inherently partial, incomplete, because we literally don't have enough time to actually get all the data about anything. So this is why I use the term uncertainty, because uh, anicca also means that, that, that inherent incompleteness, uncertainty, uh, representational, cartoonish, maybe, way that our minds present reality to us. And there really isn't any other way for our minds to do it. Right? But fortunately, there is this power of the mind to be able to aim the beam of attention and really drill into something and see something about its nature that's separate from our concepts about it. So uh, when we, when we experience a pain in the knee as not being like a solid block of unpleasantness, but actually being much more, much more complicated than that. And that the mind and the body are in a kind of a dialogue in order to generate this experience of pain. And we come to see it's, it, that it's full of comings and goings and 
our opinion about it is one thing and the actual reality of it is something else. Uh, that can loosen up our, our sense of ourselves a little bit, our sense of uh, how um, important, how meaningful, how true our opinions about everything else is. Because we can see that, you know, even something very direct and personal, like the pain in your knee, you start off with a view and opinion about it, and when you actually dig into it, your view kind of has to change because your original opinion wasn't that accurate. The whole world's like that, including your opinion about yourself, your opinion about other people, your opinion about uh, any topic, even your opinion about opinions, your opinion about Buddhism. <laughs> like, and so it's not to say that you need to reject all opinions but that you need to hold all opinions very lightly. Sort of don't, don't, don't see that the opinions somehow are truth, but they are inevitable. Right? The mind constructs opinions. And just try to recognize that when you're judging anything or you're viewing anything, or you're trying to understand anything, your opinions are filtering your experience. So you're always looking at the world and your experience through this, these layers of views and opinions, unless you happen to be really, really mindful. And uh, your mindfulness and your concentration are both good enough to see both the raw content and the opinions that are trying to kind of interpret it for you. When you see that sort of thing happening, then you can learn something new. You don't just see your opinions being animated before your eyes. And when you're not that mindful and you're not that concentrated, you can sort of bear in mind that whatever, you're, whatever the world seems to be presenting to you is to some degree being filtered through your views and opinions. And so um, what it means is that you don't actually know <laughs> what's really going on. You have an op you have, you're experiencing what's going on through your views and opinions. That's why when there's something like a, an accident where multiple witnesses uh, have seen this accident, uh, their reports are so can be so wildly divergent because their filters are interpreting things for them on the fly. And it biases their report because they, they don't actually have access to the raw data. They only have access to their recreated opinions about what happened. Same thing goes for about any event that involves other people. You know, when someone says something or when they do something with their body or uh, when they commit some series of acts before our eyes, uh, it's all happening so fast that we have to rely on our opinions to, to fill in all the blanks about what's really going on. And we come up with a judgment about that. And subsequent encounters with that same person might slowly alter our view. Uh, often our opinions about things are pretty accurate, but not always. Sometimes we're wrong. So it's good to sort of always hold it close to your your sense of what's going on is that uh, this is my interpretation. This and I am likely there's stuff I'm missing. Right? And so then, when someone else has a different opinion, it's pretty easy to sort of let them have their opinion because it's perfectly legitimate. They came to their opinions exactly the same way that you came to your opinions about things. Um, and the fact that their opinion looks wrong to you is perfectly natural. Your opinion looks wrong to them as well. 
and neither one of you are actually operating at the level of raw data and perfect mindfulness and concentration. So uh, uncertainty is pointing to that too. The Buddha talks a lot about views and opinions. He calls views and one of and opinions uh, one of the floods that washes beings away, or drown, beings are drowning in this flood, the flood of the world. So there's the flood of views, the flood of sensuality, the flood of grasping, the flood of suffering. These floods are constantly sort of sweeping us away and drowning us, and we get reborn and we get swept away again. We're constantly being deluged by these floods. They have so much power. How does one cross over the flood? Deva actually came to the Buddha and asked that question. How does one cross over? And the Buddha's, he gave a, uh, a kind of a puzzling answer. Uh, the Deva's question was more like, how did you cross over the flood, which is so hard to cross? Right? He, says, he said, by, uh, when, I, when I hurried, I uh, was swept away. And when I tarried, or when I delayed, or when I tried to hold still, I sank. So in both cases, the flood got me. So I crossed over by neither tarrying nor hurrying. Mm. Kind of ambiguous what he's saying there. But what he's trying to, I think what the Buddha's trying to get to in a, in a teaching like this is that if we think we already know how to get somewhere, like the other side of this flood, and we set out striving and we're stroking really hard, you're really trying to swim towards this, this thing, that we think that we know where we're going, well, we've got a view and opinion and we're striving towards the view and opinion. And the view and opinion is part of the flood. If we think that there's nothing to do, that's part of the flood too. We get carried away. So by what, what neither hurrying nor tarrying means, in my interpretation, is looking very carefully what's actually happening. And recognizing that views and opinions are contaminating your understanding. And keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. See the arising and passing away. See the mind interpreting. See the mind deciding what things are. See the mind drawing conclusions. Um, see how views are constructed. See what the flood is made out of. And then you're closer to being able to cross over the flood. You can't really cross over the flood until you understand it. So, um, again, the first noble truth is the noble truth of suffering. That's what brings us to practice more than anything else. It's our desire for relief from uh, suffering which is also part of the flood. And suffering can be our greatest teacher. In, in a way, it can be our ally. It's reliable. You can be sure that whenever there's suffering in your heart, there's something that the mind wants, the heart wants, that's different from the way things actually are. And the difference has to do with your view about how things could be or should be versus the way they actually are. So again, views and opinions are part of suffering. 
if you track down what's the cause of suffering, in some sense, it's always going to be the mind grasping the view, or the opinion, or the idea, something which is not actually true. Because what's actually true is what's happening right now. That's really the only truth there is. Everything else is constructed by the mind. Is mind made. So when we take on practices of practical daily life, like the five precepts, you know, uh, being careful about the life uh, and belongings and uh, integrity of other persons, other beings, uh, being really careful with truthfulness and uh, avoiding things that make our minds intoxicated and dull. We're conditioning ourselves to be fit for this investigation, which helps us cross over this flood. And that's worthy of doing. It's incredibly important. It's a big part of practice. It's quite accessible, right? We can, we can take on these precepts and we can practice with them. Um, we can make it a, a, a huge part of our daily uh, devotion to practice of just reminding ourselves of our precepts and noticing whenever we've transgressed against them in either small or large ways and reflecting on that conduct and setting the intention to do differently going forward because of our intention to free ourselves from suffering. So it's a, uh, the Buddha called this Dhamma that he taught, uh, he, he, he likened it to a raft. Uh, so it's kind of a raft made out of, out of sticks and leaves that we've gathered up on this shore. And we can use the raft and by making an effort with our arms and legs, we can have the raft give us just enough flotation that we can cross over the flood and arrive on the other side where there's safety. He also points out that when you arrive at the other side, there's not much point carrying the raft around anymore. It's, it's done its job. Uh, but until we arrive at the other side, boy, don't let go of the raft. Right? You're in the flood. The raft is beneath you. You can make the effort to cross over. Uh, if you let go of the raft, then all is lost. Right? You just get carried, get swept away. So the precepts are part of the raft. Understanding the doctrine having some degree of understanding of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, the teachings about anatta, anicca, sort of the not-self doctrine, uh, the, the doctrine about uncertainty and impermanence, and the doctrine about suffering, dukkha. Those three characteristics are said to be the characteristics of all conditioned phenomena that the mind is able to encounter. So learning about these things and reflecting on these things and seeing these things in your own experience, this is part of the raft too. Having noble friends and noble companions, that's a big part of the raft. There's a, uh, a well-known sutta, probably you already know it, when Ananda spontaneously says to the Buddha, you know, Bhante, it seems to me that 
having noble friends and noble companions is at least half of the holy life. And the Buddha corrects and says, Ananda, don't say that. Having noble friends and noble companions, that's the whole of the holy life. So it's incredibly important uh, to spend time with fellow practitioners. If you try to do it all by yourself, well, that's a difficult way to go. That's like trying to be the Buddha. He had to do it all by himself because there weren't really anybody else he could count on. Somebody who knew the Dhamma already or had a sense of it. But our noble friends and noble companions, they give us uh, a huge advantage in being able to understand this Dhamma because they're trying to understand it too. And they give us a, a, a forum in which to discuss this and to make it more real for ourselves. And uh, so here we've had a whole week of being able to share time and space and practice and words of Dhamma with fellow practitioners. And you can feel at the end of a week like this that it, it really is real, it's really vital, it's really worthwhile, it's worth your time and attention, it's worth doing. And it, uh, it does lead in the direction that the Buddha is indicating. That the understanding of these things and penetrating them well with uh, your practice, with your mindful, concentrated mind, uh, can't lead to anything other than uh, knowledge, vision, and understanding of the way things really are and the heart's release from suffering. So those were my little comments. Let me check the, uh, the question and answer box. Oh, the question box. It doesn't have any answers in it, does it? <laughs> it's just questions. Who knows? Maybe there'll be answers in here. Let's see. No, there's only one. Okay, we're going to need glasses for this. <laughs> this is one of my favorite questions. Thank you so much for the chocolate at lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and now we have emptiness. <laughs> So maybe one last question, one that, that, that recurs uh, at the end of retreats, in my experience, is, okay, some degree of mindfulness, some degree of, of concentration, some degree of understanding has developed due to your efforts, your diligent efforts uh, at practice. Um, how do we keep that? <laughs> or how do we keep it going in daily life? And it's an interest, interesting dilemma that we have, right? We have to go back and we have to work and we have to deal with household stuff and deal with family stuff and relationships and work projects and bills and taxes and cars and all kinds of things, all the stuff of the world. Too bad we can't just stay in meditation retreat forever, but we can't. Um, I think this is a natural part of the cycle of the development of Dhamma. Right? We have to go from the empty dwelling or the root of the tree or the forest where we practice intensely back to uh, the monastery where there's visitors and events and, or our lives where there's visitors and events. And uh, so practice goes deep and then it 
goes to the world and it goes deep and it goes to the world and it goes deep and it goes to the world. Just like the Buddha's own life. He went off for six years to practice. He went deep and then he came back and he taught. So um, when we go back to the world, maybe the biggest task is just not to forget what we're about, not to forget what we're trying to do, not to completely abandon our practice. Uh, and so there's lots of practical tips in that regard. And um, maybe just share a few and then maybe solicit a few. Um, you know, if you haven't already done so, setting up some reminders in your house where you live is really good. Right? Uh, doesn't necessarily have to be Buddha Rupa. It can be anything that works for you to remind you of views and opinions are not real. They're just views and opinions. Uh, what the Buddha taught is worth pursuing. The Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering. Um, the things that hook your heart, the things that touch you in the Dhamma. For a lot of people, Buddha Rupa is really good because it, it represents the noble ideal of awakening. But for some people, it's a little too religious, religious looking, and they don't really resonate, doesn't resonate for them. Um, I personally found that quotes from the Dhammapada really work for me. Having like, like the very first phrase from the Dhammapada, first couple of quatrains. Mind is the forerunner of all things. One who acts with a corrupted mind is followed by suffering. The way the wheel of the cart follows the hoof of the ox that draws it. Mind is the forerunner of all things. One who acts with a purified mind is followed by happiness, like a shadow that never leaves. Hmm. Seeing that on the wall just, you know, makes me want to purify my mind. So whatever works for you is important to put up reminders to help give yourself a physical sense of the Dhamma in your life. Obviously, um, if you're not already part of a sitting group, uh, see if you can join one. Right? If you are part of a sitting group, go to the sitting group. Stop making excuses. Right? Um, if there's no sitting group near you, then maybe try starting a sitting group. And uh, of course, it's it's always encouraged to see if you can find time in your busy schedule to try to sit, sit and practice. And when you're sitting, don't have any expectations about achieving anything or getting to the depths that you did when you were on retreat. Just see what actually does happen and keep setting the intention to, to try to understand, try to see, try to calm the mind, uh, try to watch what happens, uh, touch into your devotion, use sitting time to reflect, uh, as well as to try to uh, still the mind. Reflection is very useful, and it's actually quite uh, accessible in daily life because the mind is kind of busy anyways, and it's kind of engaged in thinking anyways. And reflection is just a skillful way of giving your mind something useful to think about. 
So you take up a theme like um, your your conduct for the day and how it stands against your uh, your vision for yourself or how you'd like to conduct yourself. Or take up the theme if your mind's a little grumpy, take up a theme that will make it happier. Think about devas. That's a good one. That can make your mind happier. Or think about the qualities of the Buddha or the qualities of Dhamma or the principle of enlightenment. Just turn it over in your mind like the way that the mind will think about anything. But just kind of keep it on the track of thinking about one of these themes that works for you. There's a lot of them, right? The Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, those are the traditional ones. The Devas are a traditional one. One's own virtue is, is a traditional one as well. But um, anything that's in line with the Dhamma, that's of a wholesome nature, is um, worthy of contemplation. And if your mind wants to think and you can't, you're struggling to get it to stop thinking, well, maybe go with the flow. Take advantage of the mind's power and use it to turn over these concepts. You see how deeply you can, you can see the connections between the Buddhist teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the theme that you're, you're taking up. Uh, if you take up the theme that has to do with virtue, how do the Four Noble Truths relate to virtue? Why is virtue so important in Buddhism? You know, that's a, something that's worth exploring and discovering for yourself, uh, rather than just listening to somebody else talk about it. <coughs> so when you, when you use the discursive power of the mind to explore these topics, it's as though you're giving yourself your own Dhamma talks. Right? You're listening to your own mind uh, relate its, the depth of its understanding about the Dhamma. And if it seems maybe sort of kind of shallow and superficial, okay, that's that's where we are now. Um, but it, that might motivate you to study some suttas, maybe listen to some dhamma talks, talk it over with other people, um, uh, continue <coughs> contemplating it, try to see it in your own life, and then come back to that theme again. So this this material just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. There isn't really, I don't think there's a a limit really to it. Uh, it's like uh, wisdom or maturity. There's no, there's no real upper limit. And as it, as it goes along, it becomes more engaging, more, uh, more fulfilling, uh, more delightful. You could say more delightful for the heart to consider these things. And. Um, Reflecting on wisdom and reflecting on virtue uh, can really still the mind, make it kind of happy and peaceful and still. And when stillness arises, you can just enjoy the stillness. You can simply allow the mind to have a little refresher course of meditation. So there's, you don't have to just sit there and watch your breath in order to be practicing outside of retreat. If that works for you, that's totally great. But if breathing med meditation is just, you know, uh, wasting your time, <laughs> right? try to use your meditation time for something, for something skillful, something useful. If all bets are off, then you can just listen to a Dhamma talk. Uh, you can you can read a sutta. Uh, you can read a com like modern commentaries on suttas are widely available. 
and uh, that that's an expression of your devotion to the teaching, your loyalty, if you will, to the Buddha, is your willingness to put time and effort, even when it's hard, even when the mind's tired or it's been a busy day, to just come back over and over again to the root principles here of attending to what the Buddha is teaching, being a, being a good disciple, being a good student. And if, you know, a week or two or six comes along where you just completely ignore all that, I know, that's life, right? As soon as you remember, you just come back. It's just like mind-wandering in meditation, right? You might be lost for a long time, but as soon as you remember, just, just come back. That's the best thing to do. Um, other things that uh, came up today in discussions with during the meetings was at work. Okay, so you know, we spend a lot of time at work. Uh, so in your physical environment at work, one thing that you can f try to do, one thing that has worked for other people, is to identify one or more places at work where you have to pass through either on the way to the bathroom, or going to the break room, or going between floors of a building, some physical space where you have to pass through, and you're transporting your body from one location to another, and you do that maybe a few times a day. Um, decide that that kind of passageway, that sort of no man's land, where you have to pass through it, um, while you're passing through it, you're gonna drop everything else and just pay attention to your feet or your breath, just for that five seconds, every time. And that's, that can really kind of break up a, a, you know, a big negative mind state. If you, if you make cultivate a habit like that, you look for landmarks, physical landmarks, in the face, space that you work in, and you make that a holy place for yourself every time you go through it. And if you actually find that and you cultivate that, well then pretty pretty soon you'll start finding little excuses to go to your, <laughs> go to the break room, go to the bathroom, go upstairs, so that you can just have your five seconds of passing through. Right? Um, you can use other landmarks in the, in the day um, if there's certain events that always happen, like uh, when I was in the office, um, I'd hear the telephones of other people ringing. And so uh, one thing you can do is if you've got something like that, whenever you hear a telephone ring, close your eyes and come back to this reality. Right? Just come out of your mind just for a second, touch into the body, touch into this moment. Ask yourself whether it's really that bad <laughs> or whether it's actually okay. Right? Um, right now there's no civil war. Right now, there's no famine. Right now, there's no thermonuclear end of the world. Right? right now, you're probably actually surrounded by fairly civilized people in a comfortable building. And in the scheme of things, in human history, it's not that bad. So you can relax. Right? It's just drama. Just drama. Right? And when the phone stops ringing, you open your eyes and get back to work. Mm. <laughs> what, are you sleeping? <laughs> Uh, and so, so look at your own space, look at your own life. And look at like how it is for you when you drive somewhere, how it is when you 
get on the train, how it is when you um, are shopping for groceries, um, how it is when you're preparing a meal for, for your dinner. Um, all the routines and the chores that you have, to, all the things you have to do on a routine basis. See if you can find things like that, landmarks, uh, places that you can declare are sacred places or times that you can declare are sacred times and just uh, start with just really small, just one little space and start using it, really, really, you know, exploit it. And then you might notice there's other opportunities that are nearby, so you can sort of expand. Maybe you, along with the hallway, you start including the bathroom. Or, you know, maybe along with the hallway and the bathroom, you start including, like, um, one part of your cubicle. Right? <laughs> My chair's over here, I'm, I'm going to meditate for a second. So there's lots of, lots of ways you could find to do this. And so when you're doing that, when you're looking for like places and times that you can sort of check in, uh, make it holy for yourself, make it special for yourself just for a couple of seconds, then your day isn't just like one solid block of irritation until you get home and you can finally meditate, right? You're kind of breaking it up and that starts to fill out your mind a little bit. You can, every time you do that, then you can bring that more contemplative, more balanced uh, presence into the next moment, into the meeting, into the phone call, into the email that you're reading. And maybe it doesn't last very long, but that's okay. Next time you hear the phone ring, you just do it again, and you keep kind of bringing this in and bringing it in. And it does accumulate over time. So your formal practices, when, you're, when you have the opportunities to do them, these kind of quasi-momentary informal practices in your daily life uh, can help infuse your life with a sense of, oh, I'm always kind of practicing, or I'm about to practice, or there's a practice opportunity coming up any minute now, right? I'm gonna have to wait in the line here for the cashier at the grocery store. What should I do? Should I think about crazy stuff or practice? You can just sit there and count your breath. Right? So you could do, and, and by reminding yourself as many times as you can, by hanging out with other people who are doing it too, by trading tips, right? these sorts of things can be, uh, on the, you know, they're all helping. Right? There's no magic bullet. You have to make it yourself. Right? You have to kind of fabricate a life that supports your practice from the pieces that you have available to you. Right? Uh, uh, there's obviously a bunch of stuff that you can do that you can do uh, in terms of avoiding uh, unhelpful stuff. So, violent movies maybe, or too much time reading about politics, or uh, you know, there's things that that you can see just aren't aren't helpful for your mind or for your practice and aren't really necessary, even though maybe your mind, part of you finds them kind of uh, delicious somehow. See if you can do that less. Maybe, maybe see if you can let it go for like a longer period of time. See if you can do it without it. See what that's like. Uh, there might be certain toxic people that you could, you know, find ways to dodge. Right? Uh, there might be uh, certain activities that you engage in that just really aren't that necessary that you could give up. Every one of these things might reduce the burden on your mind, and they might also free up time that you can spend more time doing them useful activities.
serving others, doing acts of generosity, uh, carrying out meritorious deeds, meditating, uh, talking to Dhamma practitioners. So, uh, in a way, there's endless opportunities if you look at your life that way, looking not so much at like what's wrong or what's keeping me from. Uh, that's that's an important question too. But also like, what can I do here? What's you know, where are the opportunities here? What, what can I make a, uh, what can I make work for me? And while we're here, we're retreat starting to break up. You can kind of feel it. I mean, where is everybody? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> They're all gone. Um, uh, if you have a couple of ideas about things that have worked for you, uh, this would be a great time to share those, right? So I invite anybody who's got uh, things that work for them or things that might be helpful to suggest. Yes? Well, the, the one that I, I always wash dishes by hand, and mm -hmm. washing dishes is meditation for me. Like, and I, I, and I, I don't, a lot of times I'm like, no, no, I'm doing it, because mm -hmm. I enjoy putting my hands in the water and Anyway, so I kind of make that into, and, and some other chores, I try to make them first tell myself that I'm going to enjoy this, that I'm going to like do it, do it in a way that I will enjoy it, mm -hmm. and then I usually do. Oh well, yeah, that's, that's, a great, that's a great suggestion. I mean, yeah, washing dishes, uh, chopping vegetables, working mm -hmm. in the garden, it might all be things that you have to do. You can make it into an onerous chore, or you could make it into a meditative undertaking. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. Uh, arguing with your office mates, you know, just, I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> well, maybe not. Uh, any other ideas, suggestions, helpful tips? I put up uh, in my office. Uh -huh. I put up uh, Dhammapada oh, yeah? on the wall on my desktop. <laughs> blinking, blinking, blinking. Oh yeah, a blinking Dhammapada. Uh, oh, uh, it's on the desktop, so uh -huh. it keeps showing up. Oh, I so see. So I, I got two computers, right? I see. So the so screens are showing. Screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anything if you can get away with that in your office space, that's great. Yeah, put up Dhammapada in your office. Definitely. Plus. Uh, 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 like someone comes to your office and wants to talk nonsense. Hey, have, have you seen this over here? <laughs> <laughs> Point them at the Dhammapada. Ask them what they think of it. Okay, well I think, hope that serves as, as encouragement. Let's um, Let's meditate together for a little while. And uh Handamayan Dhamma Kateya Sadhu Karam Dada Masay Sadhu Sadhu